You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And then we're going to be in several different uh, passage locations this morning, um, just continuing to to focus on the idea of us uniting together uh, for common goals and common purposes related to the gospel as we come out of the story of the Tower of Babel. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12, we've looked at this passage before, but Peter says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Today I wanted us to to look once again at doctrine that unites us, allows us to uh, do ministry together, allows us to participate with others outside of our church. How do we determine those that we can feel safe with in partnering with them in ministry? And who are those that we should stay away from and steer clear from? You know, I was thinking back, uh, you know, as we're, as we're singing there today, it is well with my soul. How do we know if it's well with someone's soul in such a way that my relationship is partnership versus my relationship being evangelism with that individual? How can I know when I can look at a person and say, okay, we don't go to the same church. We don't worship the same way. There's different things that we interpret differently in scripture. But how can I look at that person confidently and say, okay, our souls are okay. We can minister together, worship at separate, separate places on a Sunday morning, but do ministry together during the week. How do I know when that's my perspective and when that's my goal versus looking at an individual and saying they need the gospel. They need the gospel. They go to a different church than I do, but we can't do ministry together because I need to minister to this individual. I need to evangelize this individual. I need this person to understand Christ and grace and justification. I need them to understand the gospel because based on the church they go to, based on the beliefs that they have, we are so far different that ministry right now is not possible. So our summary sentence for this morning, where we're going today A person's beliefs about Jesus, his commands for life, and how others should be treated will ultimately determine whether I partner with that person in ministry or contend against them. What that person believes about Jesus and what that person believes about his commands and then how that person believes that others should be treated Those factors will ultimately determine if I'm going to partner with that person in ministry or whether I'm going to contend against them. Meaning, are we on the same team or are we on different teams? Same team, different teams. Doesn't mean we have to be identical. Doesn't mean we have to be exactly alike. But it's possible for us to be on the same team as others that don't go to our church. But it's also very likely that we come in contact with people that are playing for a totally different team. Let me give you two examples talking about, is it well with that person's soul? So Jesse and I were talking with a friend of ours the other day, and he was talking about ministry that he has and how he's going about that ministry. And he says that in reading the New Testament, he sees Jesus's followers praying over people and then being healed. He He uh, sees people in the New Testament casting out demons. And so he says, you know, I feel like that that's 
supposed to be part of my ministry right now. So when I come in contact with people, I'm, I'm praying over them, praying for them to be healed. If I feel like that there may be a demonic presence, I'm, I'm trying to cast that, that demonic presence away. And he said, you know, he kind of laughed it off at the end. And he said, right now I'm 100% accurate at nothing happening when I've done these things. So every time I've attempted to do this, nothing has changed. I know this individual well enough, I believe, to know that his soul is okay with God. That I can do ministry with this individual, even though I'm not of the belief that I should be praying for healing as though I have a gift of healing, nor do I necessarily need to be praying for demons to be cast out. The reason that I can still feel like I can do ministry with this individual is because Jesus was casting out demons and then he was accused of being satanic, right? So people identified him and said, this isn't okay. This isn't normal. This is not right. This is of the devil. My perspective is one of three things can be happening when, when so-called demon uh, casting out is happening. Either one, it's happening, that, that something supernatural is happening as it happened in the New Testament. But I would be under the belief that that most of that has changed in the New Testament where we're at in the, in the level of church history, that some of that may still be happening overseas and in some cultures where the gospel is first getting to those areas. So something may be happening. Secondly, nothing's really happening, but it's been staged to look that way. Staged to look that way. So I think there's some things that we see on TV, some ministries where there are things that are created to look that way for financial gain. Or then the third possibility when somebody does this is what our friend is experiencing. Nothing's happening. Like I'm, I'm praying for these things to happen and absolutely nothing, nothing is happening. What I can be confident about is that nothing satanic is happening, right? Because Jesus says, why would Satan cast himself out? Why would Satan cast out demons? That would be contrary to his purposes. So in my conversations with this individual, I believe that his soul is okay with God. I believe we're interpreting some things differently in scripture. But I believe we can do ministry together. Now, we're going to worship at different churches on Sunday morning because those beliefs are going to change how we worship corporately. Now, I had a, a gentle old man come to my door um, yesterday or two. It was yesterday with his wife. Walked up. I mean, best Sunday attire they had. This guy had a cute little hat on. I mean, it looked like he was going to the Derby to watch a horse race. I mean, just a precious-looking man and his wife. They come up to me, and then right behind them, I see another precious couple that are older, that are of African-American descent. And so they're walking down the street, and I'm thinking, oh, man, like, I want to be talking to these guys. We're talking about this in church. Like, I'd love to, to connect with these people. And then immediately they whip out the Jehovah's Witness material and begin to talk to me about their faith. I can't do ministry with these people. As, as precious as they are and as much as I want to connect with, these black, uh, with this black couple that's walking down the street, I can't do ministry with these people because they don't believe in the same Jesus as I do. Now, my buddy that that's praying for healings and believes that maybe he has the gift of healing and he's praying for demons to be cast out. We believe in the same Jesus. So we can do ministry together, even though there's some disagreement in, in how that plays out in everyday life. These two couples that were walking our streets in our in our neighborhood, I can't do ministry with. Because their beliefs about Jesus are so contrary and so different. Their souls aren't okay with God. And so they need a different type of interaction with me. Okay? So how do we determine which category each individual falls into? Um, understanding the values of doctrine in your notes here. Number one, 
when we talk about doctrine and beliefs, we start with absolutes. These are core beliefs of the Christian faith. Core beliefs of the Christian faith. These are, these are things that we can't compromise on. These are the things that, that unite us, but they have to be present there if we're going to have fellowship with someone outside of our church. True Christian fellowship. Now, we can have fellowship with lost people. We can have relationships with lost people. But when we're talking about spiritual family interaction, spiritual family relationship, we have to hold to these things that we call absolutes, core beliefs of the Christian faith. We then have things that we call convictions. Convictions are not core beliefs, but they impact the health and the effectiveness of the church. These are things that would separate us from, from gathering together and worshiping at the same church. Okay, This would be um, areas of baptism, potentially, modes of baptism. Right? So because we, don't, because we don't baptize infants here, there are some people that would not be able to worship here because of their belief system. We had a great family visit early on when we first planted Sovereign Hope. Uh, that, that came here and ultimately told me, hey, we can't stay here because of our convictions regarding baptism. We would want our kids to be baptized here. I um, mean, that's not something that you guys do. And so we need to worship somewhere differently. We can believe in the same Jesus, but those convictions are going to shape how we worship together. And so we're going to worship at different churches, even though we may be able to still do ministry together. Third, we have opinions. These are less clear issues that are not worth dividing over. So here within this church, there are things that we're going to believe differently. But based on the fact that scripture isn't as clear as sometimes we would like for it to be on some of these issues, it's not something that we would divide over. It's not something that I would go to my grave believing and willing to die for. Some eschatological views could fall into here. Amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, things that... We should pursue knowledge of in scripture. We should have convictions and opinions about, but it may not be something that's worth really going to a different church over. And then lastly, what we would call questions. These are unsettled issues that the scripture is so unclear about these things. We certainly wouldn't divide over these things. Um, it's things that we haven't even really decided what we believe about. We, we know that it's out there. We just haven't fully determined what we believe about these things. Now, some of the ways that we determine whether it's an absolute issue or a conviction issue is based on the clarity of Scripture. How clear is Scripture about the issue? How relevant is it to the gospel? So if we're talking about eternity issues and salvation issues, how related to the gospel is it? So we talked about different views and opinions about the, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Are we talking about angels and, and humans coming together and procreating? Or are we talking about godly, uh, godly men and ungodly women coming together? We can disagree about those things. It really doesn't have any bearing on the gospel. It doesn't change our understanding of justification and faith and, and what it means to be right with God. Um, so clarity of scripture, relevance to the gospel, and then frequency and significance in scripture, right? Like how often does scripture talk about this? Scripture talks immensely about the concept of works and how works do, do not earn our salvation. So conviction about that area and how works factor into our salvation, those things are going to relate to absolute issues for us, right? Sons of God, daughters of men, far less frequent in scripture. So we're not going to put as much weight on those type of things. Okay, 
Now, this is important, and it ties into what we're talking about in Genesis, because Israel was called to be a blessing to all nations. Now, we're about to move into the section on Abraham, and, and part of the covenant that's made with Abraham, God says, I'm going to bless you, and then you are going to be a blessing to all nations. Now, what does he mean by that? Ultimately, we understand that the Messiah comes through Abraham's line. So there's a blessing that's tied to Abraham's existence. God says, I'm going to bring the Messiah through your line. But in addition to that, the children of Israel were to be a blessing to all nations because God was going to specially reveal who he was to them. Right. So we have uh, God revealing himself through the tabernacle and the sacrifice system and then eventually the temple. God reveals things about who he is through the kingship of Israel. Those things were meant to be passed on and used to illuminate the hearts of the other nations around them. So when God breaks everybody off and spreads them out and makes nation after nation after nation, God chooses Abraham, says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. You're to bless all other nations. So they were, be, they were to be a light to those around them. Some examples of, of, of uh, how Israel did this. So the nations around Israel needed a consistent, true revelation concerning the creator. Because Romans 1 says that mankind abandoned the creator for creation. That happens at the Tower of Babel. Mankind goes astray, begins to worship other things. The nations need a correct view of the creator. Okay, so Israel was supposed to give that. Some examples that I wrote down. Uh, Rahab is an individual who was not part of Israel, that Israel served as a light to her. So Israel illuminates her. She comes. She becomes a part of the Israelite nation. Uh, she becomes a a follower of Yahweh. Okay. Um, Naaman is another example. This is one of AJ's favorite stories right now. When we put him to bed, he wants to hear about the guy that took a bath. Naaman, the general who has leprosy, who ventures over to Israel, meets Elisha. Elisha gives him instructions about how to, to be cured physically. In the midst of that, Naaman's heart gets right. Says that he's going to go back home and worship the one true God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, Right. He's he's a, he's the leader of Babylon through his interaction with with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. His heart gets changed. And there's a there's a beautiful passage in, in Daniel where he talks about who God has become to him based on his experiences. These are individuals who who Israel was able to be a light to Ruth's another example. Ruth coming back with Naomi and becoming a part of of Israel and worshiping Naomi's God. We are tasked with that as well now. As, as God's people in the New Testament, we're to be a light to the nations. We are to pass on a correct understanding of the creator to those that we come in contact with. And we want to be globally focused. So we don't want to just think of it in terms of, okay, let me be gospel-oriented with people that are like me. That we want to think globally. How can we be faithful to present an accurate view of the creator to others. We do that through through a specific doctrine, a specific doctrine that unites us. It's a doctrine that the universal church must hold to these absolutes that we're talking about absolutes that makes an individual a Christian versus a non-Christian, not someone who's a Baptist versus a Presbyterian. Both can be Christian, but both are separated because of convictions and opinions. But they hold to the absolutes if they're true believers. What are those absolutes? What are those, those doctrines that unite us? In Acts chapter 2, 
the early church rallied around what we call the apostles' doctrine. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There was unity around a certain core level of teaching. And I want us to look at that uh, this morning. What we find in Scripture is that Scripture warns heavily against those who teach another gospel. So all through the New Testament, we find warnings from the apostles about people that would want to pervert the gospel, specifically perverting the grace of the gospel, taking it to two extremes. The legalistic mindset that wants to add to God's grace. Okay, God is good, he is gracious, but he demands that you do certain things to be saved. Or taking it to the other extreme where God is so overly gracious that it doesn't matter what you do, continue to live in your sin because God is so forgiving and so gracious. There's warnings against both perspectives in in the New Testament. People that would pervert the gospel. Scripture warns heavily also against those that would attack the person of Jesus Christ. Those that would minimize sin. Those that would maximize good works. And those that would reject his second coming. I want us to look specifically at three areas this morning. Three areas, and I want these to be helpful reminders. So we started off by reading Second Peter this morning. Peter says, I want to continually, continually remind you of these things. So this morning, I don't know that I've got anything new for you. Anything that you haven't learned already. But what I'd like to do is take things that we've learned, organize it in a way that you can potentially use it moving forward to determine partnership versus evangelism with those that we come in contact with outside of our church. This is so relevant for what we're talking about doing this morning. Partnering with other ministries, partnering with other churches. Do we fellowship with them in full fellowship and partnership? Or do we potentially get together with them for the purposes of gospel evangelism? So even when we talk about churches that are of, of African-American descent or, or Hispanic or Asian, when we talk about trying to pull some of these churches together for a kickball fellowship and cookout, it's okay if they're not the type of church that we can partner with. It just changes how we approach that evening. Are we celebrating the fact that we all responded to the gospel and we are believers? Or are we inviting them to come together to build relationships with them because ultimately they need the gospel? Both are, both are healthy, both are great, both are needed. That will be determined when we figure out which churches we're going to do this with. Okay, um, Doctrine that unites. We're going to look at this from the concept of what First John presents to us. So the three areas that we're focusing on this morning are the three areas that, that John highlights in First John. Okay, We start with theological reminders. What are my beliefs about Jesus? So in our summary sentence, what someone believes about Jesus will ultimately shape whether I'm partnering or contending with them, okay? We look first at the deity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. He claimed to be God. A couple of things underneath this. First of all, he's the Messiah, and Scripture tells us that in order to be a Christian, in order to be a believer, in order for someone to be an individual that we would want to partner with, they must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. First John 2, 22. That he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. It says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. He is the Messiah. He's everything that was promised in the Old Testament. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Okay, so there's, there's heavy weight placed here by one who has walked with Jesus. John, who has, has seen him personally, has interacted with him personally, says, for someone to be the type of individual that I can partner with, that I can view as a believer, they must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That they have to have good theology about Jesus in that area. That they have to, they have to connect him with the fact that he's the one promised all the way back in the book of Genesis. When everything went awry in the garden, God says, I'm going to send someone to defeat Satan. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Secondly, he's the son of God. That there, there's, a, there's a claim here that he's not just an individual who, who serves in the role or the, the office of Messiah. That he's, that he's deity, that he is God. And that's where a lot of cults get off based in their perspective and views about Jesus. Either he is a God or he's less than God. But for them to be a cult, that means that they don't believe that he is God. That he's the one true God, the only God. And that's what scripture presents to us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. He's the Son of God. In 1 John 5, 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We could rephrase that based on what we sang this morning. Who is it whose soul is well with God? It's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. These are, these are points of contact for you in interacting with others around you. You work with somebody that says, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. Okay, well, let's talk about what you mean by that. Do you believe these core beliefs, these absolute beliefs, or do you deviate from them? Do you deviate from them? Or are they, they different? Do they, would they separate us? 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. He is the son of God. To believe in Jesus is to believe the claims and presentation of Jesus. So Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and others that would come and say that they believe in Jesus. And then when you delve into it, you find that they believe in a different Jesus. They don't believe in the Jesus that, that he claimed to be. They don't believe in the Jesus that Scripture presents him to be. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's, he's one with God. He's equal with God. He is God. And then number three, he's a member of the triune God. So lest we, we move into our own heresy of being Jesus-only people, as though the God of the Old Testament now blends in and becomes Jesus in the New Testament, lest we, we pervert that, and become a Jesus-only type of church, we remind ourselves that Jesus presented in his life a triune understanding of, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How? He prayed to his Father. He modeled that prayer for his disciples. 
he anticipates the coming of the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Holy Spirit coming in a special way when he leaves. He tells his disciples, it's an advantage to you for me to leave so that the Holy Spirit has room to work in the way that, that God has designed for the Holy Spirit to work. So, so Jesus presents a triune understanding of who he is in relationship to the Godhead. This is important, too, because it separates us from others that would believe in Jesus only and blurring the lines of the Holy Spirit and in God, God the Father. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's a member of the triune God. Next, the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. He came to be the perfect man. This has big implications for us in our understanding of both God and man. First of all, Scripture tells us that he came in the flesh. 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Jesus has come in the flesh. Second John. In the book of second John, verses seven through eleven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The humanity of Jesus. Scripture says it's absolutely necessary to believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Why? Because he comes as a perfect man. He's perfect. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And what this tells us is it, it tells us the flip side. So Jesus comes as a perfect man. It says in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So by our understanding that Jesus came in the flesh, that he's human, that he came to be perfect, it affirms the sinfulness of man. It affirms the hopelessness of man. It affirms that Adam was incapable of being our savior. It affirms that Noah was incapable of being our savior. It assumes that every individual after these men are incapable of being our savior. It says that he came, that he was just like us. So the humanity of Jesus, he was tempted just as we are. He can sympathize with us because of what he experienced. But he did all of those things. He experienced all of those things without sin. He's a perfect man. It's necessary. It's an absolute conviction for us. It's an absolute conviction if we're to partner with other churches in this area. That they believe that Jesus is God. That they believe Jesus is man. Because what it communicates is that man is hopeless without Christ. It's a necessary, absolute conviction. 
Next, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. He defeated death. He defeated death. Paul ties the importance of a resurrection belief to the Christian faith in 1 Corinthians 15. Tells us that without this belief, without this understanding, it all, essentially we have no faith. 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Christian faith is based on historical facts, events that happened. Paul says the gospel is tied to historical events that Jesus Christ came, that he died on the cross, that he rose again. It's not a philosophy. It's not a a collection of ideas and thoughts and opinions. It's historical fact. Paul says our faith is tied to events that happened. To believe in the resurrection of Jesus is to hold to an absolute doctrine that unites us with other believers. It's because he defeated death that he secured a future hope for believers. It's not just a historical fact in the past. It gives us future in our history. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order... Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The resurrection of Jesus. He defeated death. And then lastly in this section, the sufficiency of Jesus. The sufficiency of Jesus. He did everything. Now this is an area where you may start to check out with someone. Okay, they believe, they seem to believe in the same Jesus as me. They believe that that he is deity, that he's God. They believe in the triune nature of God. They believe in the humanity of Jesus, that he came to be a perfect man, to to die for our sins. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the historical fact that Jesus came back from the dead. But then many would deviate here from the sufficiency of Jesus. Underneath this, no external work can be added to the gospel. Scripture presents that we are justified by faith. And many would seek to add to the gospel here. When you begin to really discuss with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or or others that deviate from these absolutes, a lot of times it's tied to a distortion of Jesus. But then secondly, a lot of times it's tied to them not seeing Jesus' work as sufficient. 
They add to it. They add to what Christ has done as, as, as saying that this is what you must do as well. So a lot of what's tied into the, to the, to those philosophies and religions is that, um, I must do things to secure my eternal hope. I must be baptized. I must evangelize. A lot of times these people that are knocking on doors do so because it helps their afterlife, helps secure their afterlife or makes their afterlife better. So while there may be some genuine love and care and concern for those in their neighborhoods, they come ultimately for selfish reasons because it betters them in the afterlife. It's things that are attached to the work of Jesus Christ. This is where, where the, the doctrine of, of uh, speaking in tongues can be dangerous if it becomes a necessary sign of salvation. Right? So there are brothers and sisters in Christ that hold to the absolutes and do not distort the gospel that believe uh, in, in speaking in tongues. And we can partner with them, we can serve with them. It becomes a danger and a distortion of the gospel if it becomes a necessary component for one to be saved. That you have to do these things, otherwise you're not a believer. Then we start to venture into the legalistic mindset, things that are added to the work of Jesus. Christ is sufficient. These things are not needed. Galatians 3 reminds us of this. Galatians chapter 3 verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has betwitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul ties the fact that Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. And then down in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. If anything is needed to be attached to the work of Christ, then it diminishes the glory of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us. If, if we have to do something, if we have to add to it, if we have to perform some type of ceremony, some type of work, then it diminishes the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So no external work can be added to the gospel. And then lastly here in this section, no additional revelation should be added to his word. The Bible is sufficient. It's authoritative. It's reliable. Second Timothy 3 talks about it being profitable. It gives us everything that we need. Second Thessalonians chapter two, Paul reminds the Thessalonians there of the sufficiency of scripture. It says in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Warns them against deviating from the traditions that have been taught through scripture the need for extra revelation that would then distort what's been already presented in Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A lot of times we can determine whether someone is is capable of, of being a partner with us or someone that we should contend against based on their view of Scripture. How high do they hold Scripture? Is Scripture a add-on to their faith or is it the grounds for their faith? Where, where do they place their value of Scripture? When we talk about churches corporately, what type of value is placed on God's Word in their worship service? Is it something that is mentioned at the very beginning and then man deviates from it and presents lots of thoughts and ideas and philosophies that spring out of one verse? And it was mentioned because you should, you should mention a verse when you preach? Or is, or is God's Word what's taught in that church? That helps us determine if it's a church that we can partner with or not. What type of value is placed upon God's word? Does it hold value in that church? The Bible must carry ultimate authority in the life of those we partner with. Teaching cannot flow based on what man desires for his ears to hear. And this is where it becomes dangerous for churches that deviate from the authority of God's word and they begin to... Uh, be conscious of what people want to hear. And Timothy warns, or Paul warns Timothy about this in 2 Timothy 4 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. These are the theological implications, the absolutes that have to be there. And it's all tied to Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus. We can determine a lot about a person based on what they believe about Jesus. Secondly here, the moral reminders. What are my views on right and wrong? And we continue with our theme of Jesus here, looking at the lordship of Jesus. He rules and determines right and wrong for us. For the believer, for the true believer, he is submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. True believers live a righteous life that flows from faith. First John says this is a necessity of being a believer. First John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We rejoiced over this recently with one of our own church members. Right in that process of church discipline, that individual could not continue sinning in that pattern. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells that individual. 
that process brings that out in an individual's life. The Holy Spirit has grounds to work because discipline is being enacted in that person's life. And that person responds gloriously because the Holy Spirit is working in their heart. The Bible says that they can't continue in that pattern of sin. If they've been rescued through faith and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, they will not make a practice of sinning. Galatians 5, 1 through 6, another passage that could be referred to here. Romans 6, the whole chapter um, highlights the aspect that we have been, we've been rescued from our sin. We've been dead to sin now. True believers remain constantly aware of their sinful flesh and need for God's grace. So in no way are we talking that a Christian escapes from sin completely and no, long, no longer needs to be mindful of his sin. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us the exact opposite. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So this protects us from the other false doctrine that would say that perfection is possible. An absolute understanding of the Christian faith is that we are always in need of the gospel because Jesus is the sufficient one, not us. Jesus' works save us not our own works. Lastly, in this section, the return of Jesus. We're talking about things that people have to hold to, absolutes that they have to hold to if we're going to partner with them. Notice we're not talking about things that would divide us denominationally. We're talking about things that would divide us from a religion standpoint, our belief in how we, we get to fellowship with God. The return of Jesus, he will return for his He's coming back for his people. True believers live in light of his imminent return. I put this under the moral reminders. While it's theological in nature, Scripture always ties the return of Jesus to how we live our lives now. That the, 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 the truth that Jesus is coming back shapes our moral decisions now. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. True believers live in light of this hope that Jesus is coming back. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the testing of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. True believers live in light of this hope of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Second Peter 3.10 is another great passage to look at. Second Timothy 4, uh, Hebrews 9.27-28. This is the last one we'll look at in this section. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In the last part of this section, true believers hope in the perseverance of the saints. Philippians 1.3 tells us that when God starts a work in an individual, he finishes that work. He finishes that work. Now, I wanted to clarify this because this was a point that I got hung up on when when serving at Snowbird because there were people that came to Snowbird that worked on staff that believed you could lose your salvation. There were churches that came to Snowbird that believed you could lose your salvation. And immediately when you hear that, it sounds like a dividing belief that, okay, if you believe that, I don't believe that, then we can't partner with each other. But a lot of times it's a matter of clarifying opinions about what we're actually saying. Most churches that believe that believe that if someone just completely abandons the faith and walks away from the faith and wants nothing to do with Jesus, they would say he lost his salvation. He didn't finish well. He didn't get to the end. We would say the person was never a a believer. They were never a Christian. They, They showed that because they didn't persevere till the end. That a true believer makes it. One church would say, The true believer lost his salvation. He didn't make it to the end. Our church would say he was never a true believer. He didn't make it to the end. Ultimately, we are communicating the same thing, that God does not allow individuals to remain in sin if they're truly a believer, right? The issue would become if we're talking about a works-based salvation. But most of the people that I've come in contact with that believe you can lose your salvation, it's for big, ginormous type things that believers don't really do. Right? Believers don't walk away from the faith. They're not true believers if they do these things. So that's one where, where there, there's some difficulty at times because a lot of times if you hear that someone believes you can lose your salvation, it sounds like a real dividing doctrine. But it's worth pursuing and trying to find some commonality in what's really being said. Ultimately, we're saying the same thing, that people that don't follow Jesus till the end don't end up with Christ in the end. We would say that they didn't lose their salvation. We'd say they never had their salvation. Okay, True believers believe in the perseverance of the saints, that when God starts a work, he finishes the work. And then lastly, the social reminders. How do I treat and interact with others? First John is full of passages that talk about the responsibility that we have to love others. The example of Jesus is set here. He is the image of God. Everything that he did in his life is, is a real-life example of who God is. So true believers see the character of God through the life of Christ. We know more about who God is and how his character works because of how Jesus functioned during his life here. True believers are able to see that Christ is the image of the one true God and his character shines through in his life. First John tells us that true believers are generous and caring to others. First John chapter three, verse 14 through 18, that if we're truly Christians, we have to love others around us. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
This is where these churches that we're talking about in this area, they, they've one-upped us in this area, I believe. So while we may, at the end, get to heaven and find out that we were right about some of the things that caused us to worship in different places on a Sunday morning, what we won't find is that we were right about not being involved with ministering to the poor and the needy in our area, right? So what I can tell you, again, is that the church that we're talking about, Vineyard Church, they believe in the same Jesus as us. They believe that he's God. They believe that he came to be a perfect man. They believe that Christ is back from the dead, giving us hope as believers. They believe in these things. They believe that Christ was perfect, that man is sinful. They believe in the sufficiency of Christ. They also believe in this example of Jesus, that Jesus served those around him, and so they too want to serve those around them. And lastly, true believers find joy in Christ rather than money and earthly pleasures. Now, this is where we would have a hard time partnering with some churches potentially in this area that are clinging to physical benefits that they believe that flow from Christ. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. True believers find joy in Christ rather than money and earthly pleasures. We would have a hard time partnering with a church that puts more emphasis on what you can receive from Christ than Christ himself. That we want to partner with churches that hold to the fact that Christ is sufficient, that he is what we receive in our salvation. That here on this earth, we should expect suffering and persecution. That we don't, don't necessarily have the right to expect material blessing and possessions and, and those type of things. That Christ is our true joy, not what Christ can potentially give us. All right, um, application questions for us. How do we know if someone is a partner or a contender? Are we playing for the same team or different teams? We can summarize what we've said today by saying, do they love Jesus? And then clarifying the Jesus that we're talking about. And that, that, that is necessary. To have an intellectual, spiritual, meaningful conversation with someone concerning Jesus it really necessitates that we define that term before we really get into the discussion. Because Jesus and what that name means carries all kinds of opinions and connotations. And so it's a word that has to be clarified. It's a name that has to be clarified so that we're on the same page. We make sure we're talking about the same God-man. Do they love Jesus? Do they love his commands? Are they individuals that want to distort what Scripture says to allow for more sin in their life? They want to reinterpret scripture that, that meshes better with the lifestyle choice that they're making. Or are they submitted to the lordship of Jesus? And then lastly, do they love his people? Do they love his people? Are they people that are interested in all nations coming to Christ? Have they broken free from that mindset that was still working on Peter when Paul had to address him when he wanted to go back to his Israelite friends Wanted to go back to, you got to do this, this, and this to be saved. And anybody that's not this can't be a part of us. Have they broken free from that mindset and seen that God's plan is a global plan that includes all peoples coming to him? All right, so again, 
wanted to give you these things this morning, not because I wanted you to necessarily be informed of new truth this morning, but I wanted you to have some things organized in your mind because we talk a lot about, and we've talked a lot in recent weeks, and, and I wanted to make sure that we understand what we're saying. We talk about we're going to partner with people that believe the same things as us regarding the necessary things. Well, what do we mean by those necessary things? And so I wanted to, to remind you, remind you again this morning what we're talking about when we say the absolutes so that we can go confidently into ministry with some people that aren't a part of Sovereign Hope, but that we can also keep a contending mindset when necessary when we come in contact with people that don't hold to these absolutes. Fellowshipping with people over the absolutes, contending with people over the absolutes. Fellowshipping with people despite different convictions and opinions, not contending with those people over those things, finding unity over the absolutes. And then finding unity to contend towards those that don't share those absolutes. and Desiring to rescue them from darkness to light. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the truths of your word. Um, Father, we've looked at a lot of scripture this morning. I pray that it's been an encouragement. I pray that, that the people here at Sovereign Hope would always know the value that's being placed on your word here. That we do view it as authoritative. We do view it as profitable. We do view it as the foundation for our faith. God, we know that Jesus Christ and the word are tied together in scripture. And so, Father, as we read and study your words, we know that, that this flows directly from you. And so we see the supernatural component of the book that we read and study from. Father, we do pray that you would continue to unite us with people in this area that share the same absolute beliefs as we do. People that are worshiping and following the same Jesus. People that are submitted to what Jesus desires. People that are anxiously awaiting for his return. And until he returns, are passionate about serving people in this area. Serving people globally for kingdom purposes. So, God, we want to be a church that's able to look beyond our walls and be able to tear down dividing lines, cross over those lines and enjoy real spiritual fellowship with the universal church and still come back to our different churches on Sunday morning over convictions and opinions, but being able to fellowship and minister and partner together. And, God, we pray for those in this area that we have to contend against. God, we know that, that this area... Is, is saturated with cultic beliefs, beliefs that do come from Satan, beliefs that are meant to distort and pervert the gospel, the grace of the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know how to contend against that work that's going on in our midst. Help us to combat it by partnering with other churches that we can agree with, that we can partner with. Father, I pray that together we would be a light and that we would dispel the darkness around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.